What's up, people? Hotep Jesus. We are back with another uncomfortable conversation. Actually, this might be the most comfortable of the conversations I've had on this channel. I have a great guest today um, that is going to reveal to you a lucrative career to get into that really doesn't cost much to get into and even uh, potential of making 200K or better um, without a degree. But before we get into that, I just want to say I'm a three-time tech co-founder, two-time author, soon to be three, working on a new book now on America, how we can heal America, wake people's eyes up to America, ultimate American red pill, coming soon. But in the meantime, you can connect with all three of my companies below. Coinbits app, shout out to Maher, you Yousef, starting that company, coinbitsapp.com, uh, basically invest in uh bitcoin automatically it's the easiest way to, to invest in bitcoin don't need a wallet don't need a tech degree don't need to be tech savvy just need to know how to pull out your credit card or your bank bank account number so we can uh do an ACA transaction and turn that stuff into bitcoin for you and we hold it for you and watch that thing go up our guest today actually has uh an account with us and we'll Begin talking about that. Also, I'm involved with Wazo AI. We're developing software, uh, does telemetry, people counting, uh, recognition technologies with camera vision. Awesome, awesome project. Hopefully, we'll have something for you guys July, maybe August, maybe September. Who knows? <laughs> something coming too. Uh, and uh, Jiffertize, everybody knows Jiffertize. It's the app we use to download uh, GIFs and videos directly from Twitter. And like I said, I'm a two time co founder. If you want to learn how to use Twitter, get Dominate Twitter at the link in the description box. Uh, gives you all my secrets on how I grew my account and how I got into the Joe Rogan experience. And also, The Unbreakable Rules of Masculinity. Uh, great book. It's uh, not a pickup artist book. A lot of people say, oh, it's a pickup artist book. No, no, you haven't read it. If you read it, it's not a pickup artist book. Uh, you will get, you will score more women, but it's really designed to uh, explain to you how women operate and how you can have better relationships with women, whether you're in a relationship or not. Without further ado, I'd like to uh, bring my guest in, Mr. Mark Schneider. Mark, what's up, bro? How are you? Hey, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. No doubt. So what's your experience with Coinbits app? How are you feeling the app so far? Um, I love it, actually. Um, you know, it's it, I had the uh, I met Eric Finman. That's who introduced me to the app. I met him. Uh, it was about a year ago, actually. Okay. And uh, I, I love it. I've uh, managed to uh, I was super excited because I crossed the one whole Bitcoin uh, relatively recently. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, I think the best part about the app is you see how much you invest and how much it's made. And, and we'll talk about money later on in more detail as we, as we talk about my experience. Um, but at one point as the pandemic hit, I was down minus like 25%. And I just kept hitting that hundred dollar button, hundred dollar button, hundred dollar <laughs> button. And it's been awesome watching it just, you know, climb back up. So I've really enjoyed that app. So it's one yeah. of my favorite apps. I, I check it probably three to five times a day. Are you serious? So, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's insane. That's insane. Yeah. Uh, when the pandemic hit and I saw those prices crashing, uh, I think my big purchase was in uh, around 5000 I think I got it like 5003 or something like that. And now it's like, at, it's uh, past nine somewhere right now. Yeah. So we made a good yeah, piece of change it. toward that time. I'm like, yeah. can we get a, can we get another one of those pandemics? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, you know, it's, it's a funny thing when you start getting into this level, you know, when, 
the stock market goes up, you gain money. Or when the markets go up, you gain money. When markets go down, you gain money. It's a weird place to be where whatever you're doing, you're making money. So. Yeah, a lot of people don't understand that they, you know, when we talked about a lot of, of investing and, you know, stock market had it crashed, you're like, aha, you guys are losing money right now. I'm like, no, actually, I'm celebrating <laughs> because, <laughs> yeah. you know, like, I'm buying. yeah, because I'm buying. Exactly. You know, um, I knew we had we were in a bubble last year. Um, we're probably still in a bubble. Um, and I just hoarded a lot of cash. I was like, I'm not going to make any any. um stock market purchases. I'm just going to chill out for a while. And I just hoarded cash, hoarded cash. And when the thing hit, I'm like, ah, the moment I've been waiting for. And it kind of shows you how like how people who invest think differently from the average consumer, where the average consumer would panic during a downturn. And we're like celebrating, right? Like bad news is good news. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it's funny. So uh, my wife, actually, her, her, her company, she got a relatively sizable bonus. And it came in right as the market was starting to slide or the, the bonus came in, but a large portion went to our 401k, which had enough of a delay to where it literally hit right at the bottom of the market. Oh, wow. Oh, <laughs> yeah. excellent. It's, it's been, I mean, our overall investments went down, but we bought at the premier time, if you know what I mean. So Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right. So... You uh, do what? I, I, I put your, your website link. If you guys want to connect with Mark, his, his website link is in the description box. Um, and you run this website now. And, and what exactly is happening here with this website? So, so I, we're, we're, I have to talk about, I have two aspects of my life. This is kind of my, my hobby is the website. Okay. And I, I promote nuclear energy as a hobby. And in my daytime job, I work in nuclear energy. All right, so I'm a power plant operator at a power plant in Virginia. Uh, and I, you know, basically I'm a fancy guy that, you know, I'm a guy that just boils water in a fancy way. That's literally all a nuclear power plant is. It's just a fancy way of boiling water, right? Okay. We just boil a lot of it and we, you know, <laughs> so that's that's really all it is. Um, and so that's, that's really where, you know, we're gonna talk about is primarily that. And uh, again, I'm such a man of few hobbies and interests. My wife is also a nuclear engineer in the industry. So okay. I joke that we have the nerdiest pillow talk on the planet. Um, <laughs> I bet. So, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 a nuclear bliss here. Um, but yeah, so and it's funny because I accidentally got into this. Okay. Like, like um, you know, I, I was you know in high school and I was an honor student, super nerd. Um, you know, I like Weird Al or I listen to Weird Al and I like it. Um, that's how you know white and nerdy I am. Uh, shout out to his, you know, great, great single on that. Um, okay. <laughs> but uh, so I was taking physics and my physics teacher talked to us about this thing called the chart of nucleides, right? And this is like the, the nuclear power version of the periodic table. And I'm, I'm going to show you how big of a nerd I am because I have one on my wall. So I'm going to rotate my camera 90 degrees and I'm going to show you this. And this is, I like to call this the decoder ring of the universe because it literally explains how energy is made in all the nuclear processes. So it's kind of a big chart. Each one of those box boxes, right? They're like an inch square and it's got, each line is actually an element on the periodic table and every different type of element in it. So I saw that thing and I thought, man, this thing is super cool. And I'm like figuring it out and I'm going, if I take these big elements and, and I'm just working this thing in my mind and I go, this is really cool. I want to work in that. And so I'm like looking at universities and I go, all right, university has to have a nuclear reactor so I can learn from it. So I'm researching that. And this is the, the late 90s. 
Um, and again, I'm, I'm a super nerd. So I played this game called Warhammer 40K. I don't know if you ever heard of it or not. Mm -hmm. um, but my Navy recruiter actually worked or played that game as well. Uh, again, another super nerd. And so I'm playing this game. And so I knew him personally. And he shows up to my high school. And, you know, he's got his table up. And I set up and I fill out the card. And this was, you know, my junior year. And then between, I get a phone call in July between my junior and senior year. And it's, you know, my, you know, uh, uh, my recruiter, Steve Fosdor, he goes, Hey, uh, Mark, it's uh, Steve, uh, or Petty Officer Fosdor. And I'm like, Hey, Steve, you and I know each other. You don't have to use the formalities. And uh, he goes, uh, Well, have you ever thought about joining the Navy? And I sarcastically said, Only if you have nuclear power. No idea that every submarine aircraft carrier was powered by nuclear reactors. And I'm like, Going, and he goes, Oh, do I have a deal for you? Uh. And so I go through and I, I, I take the ASVAB and I take this test called the NFQT, which is a nuclear field qualifying test. And I qualify for the program. And so what's on know, that? Then, what's on that test? You, you probably need some extensive science background. Yeah, you do. Um, so there, there are, are multiple entries to join the, the Navy and then the nuclear program has a, has a smaller subset. If you're less than 24, you have to be a U.S. citizen. Um, you have to score a, uh, above a 63 on the ASVAB. Um, and then you have to uh, pass this other test, this test, it's it's math, science, um, it's all STEM stuff, right? So I think okay. it was algebra two, and you, you have to have algebra two. So, you know, having that background, you know, you need that stuff and you have to have a high school diploma, GED is not applicable. So all those are the requirements. Um, gotcha. And uh, so- So you passed this test. test. Right. Yeah, I passed this test, and then I and and then my recruiter. I learned something. They have a hard time recruiting people into the nuclear power program in the Navy, mm. and that I counted as two people. <laughs> so each recruiting district in the in the in the country has a quota of people that are required to recruit each month. Okay. I counted as two people because I was going to be a nuke. Okay. So, so he yeah. was happy. And, oh yeah, so he was happy. Um, I got a, I got, um, I took the the Montgomery GI Bill. And then something called the Navy College Fund on top of it. So it was $40,000 in education benefits. I went with that instead of the GI Bill plus an $8,000 bonus. Hmm. Those bonuses today are 40 grand for hmm. signing. And if you sign and complete your, your school, you get a $40,000 bonus upon, congratulations, you completed nuclear training. Here's a check for 40 grand. You're 19 hmm. years old. Wow. That's a big <laughs> so, chunk of change, yeah. Yeah. So I went through and um, I did 20 years in the Navy. Right. So I, I, I served on submarines, aircraft carriers. I advanced. Um, the nuclear power program has the biggest bonuses in the military. Um, I got a I got a you know, granted. My numbers are like, you know, decades ago at this point. Right. I had a forty five thousand dollar bonus, a sixty thousand dollar bonus um, for reenlistment. And then when I became an officer, I received a ten thousand dollar bonus every mm. single year. Mm. Um and then from there, I, I got out, I receive a pension, I receive a VA disability check, and I receive, because of the program I'm in, is a certified apprenticeship program, and according to the Department of Veterans Affairs, I receive a check from the VA for my GI Bill. Wow. <laughs> in addition to my salary, I think I make $42 an hour right now, and I still have a couple of steps to go before I stepped out, as they call Okay. And uh, I made last year, I made $120,000. 
Um, this year I'll probably make about 130, 140. Um, and by the, you know, and so my GI bill money's tapering off and my, my salary is going up, but uh, in a couple of years, I'll go through what's called license class and I'll get my license. So a step out operator at my company makes about $46 an hour. And then I'll go through license class. I get my license. I get a $9,000 year bonus an $8 and 10 cent an hour pay raise. Right. So now you're talking in the $50 range. Um, you work over 40 hours, you get time and a half. And then we also have double time. And if you work a holiday, you get 12 hours of straight time pay plus double time. So you're effectively getting triple time. So when we're at work, there are guys that literally go, I'm going to go take my $50 P. So they're going to go pee and make 50 bucks. Right. I mean, so <laughs> and. I have my degree and we'll talk about how much my degree cost, right. but you don't need a degree to get into this. Um, okay. the, the primary method that people get into this is through experience, specifically the Navy nuclear power program. There are other methods to get in, whether you worked at a different kind of power plant. So if you worked at a coal plant, you worked at uh, hydro fossil or any of those. And then, you know, typically what happens is, is they close down a coal plant and they got to go put you somewhere else. Well, you have power plant experience, you qualify. And because of union rules, you can get the job you want. And so we have, we have a couple of workers that worked at coal plants, co-workers. And then there's another guy, and Carlos is awesome. Carlos, uh, he started out as a contractor working outages. So every 18 months, you got to shut power plants down to do a bunch of maintenance on it. So he, was, he started out basically sweeping floors. Mm. And then he just started asking questions, learning things. And occasionally they'll bring up what's called a foundations class where the, where the, the power plant's going to sit you down in the classroom, teach you all the science and, and math fundamentals, right? Mm -hmm. And then you go through and you learn it. Carlos now makes $46 an hour and he started out sweeping floors, <laughs> right? I mean, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. This actually exists. Um, okay. And so, you know, and that's fascinating. And then when you get even higher, you get towards, you know, uh, my, you know, the, the, you get your senior reactor operator's license. Those guys are making 200 G's a year, mm. right? And they, not all of them have degrees. If you have a technical degree, you can get a $6,000 bonus on top of the 200,000. Mm. But I mean, I got guys that I work with that, you know, they started the power plant at 18 years old because they, their dads worked there. That's how a lot of these young guys got the jobs is because their dads worked there. Yeah. And I was lucky. I had no idea. Um, funny story about how I got connected with the company I work for is that my wife's ex-husband, he's, he does, uh, yeah, it, it, it's, he does, um, he sets up hiring conferences. And so he did a veteran specific hiring conference and I went there and I was talking with him and he got me set up with the recruiter for the power, for the utility that then hired me. So, Wait, there wait, are, wait, 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 your, your, your wife's ex-husband knew you were her current husband. Yeah. Oh, so yeah, he's just a like, cool guy. Yeah, he's a cool guy. Yeah. Okay. I mean, you know, it's like one of those things where it's like, you know, he, you know, um, it's one of those where we want, you know, we want him to succeed. He wants us to succeed. Yeah. Right. Because, you know, the more money he makes, it's better for his son. The more money we make, it's better for his son. So why not be mutually beneficial and all that? Okay. Gotcha. Right. So that's, that's the behavior, the behavior we take on all that. Um, Yeah. So, I mean, that's just my, my pathway to get there. Okay. Now I do want to talk about my degree because I All know right. that, that, that I got a bachelor's degree in nuclear engineering technology for $286 out of my pocket. <laughs> that's insane. 
So it's insane. Yeah. While I was in the Navy, the Navy has, to, or the military in general has tuition assistance. So this is open to all members of the military while they're in. So they will pay your, your tuition on uh, any classes you take. I took one class for my degree and the rest I took were exams. Mm. So I took, I they had this program called CLEP, which is basically you sit, you go to a, a Navy, a college office, army college office, whatever. And you sit down, they give you this test and say it's on humanities. And you get, you take this test, you score above a certain amount. That university, the university, mine is Thomas Edison State University. They said, you got above a 50, congratulations. Here's six credits in humanities. And then I had to meet, I had to meet residency. So Thomas Edison State University has their version of that exact same thing. The Navy paid for those tests. I took a technical writing and two physics classes <laughs> to meet residency. Okay. And then the one class I took was on, which was on human performance management. I had to pay $86 for the book. So that's oh. the first, the first thing I had to pay for. All and right. then when I had all my credits done, I had to pay $200 for my to it for my graduation fee. Wow. Most of my, all my, my in-class credits, all the, the in-degree credits were all based off of my experience. Ah, uh, interesting. So, okay. so it was all based on the fact that I had, you know, I was a, you know, when I got it, I was a, I was a chief petty officer. So Sergeant first class for people who understand army, it's, you know, relatively high in the pay scale on the enlisted side. And so I worked through. And so my experience, you know, all those things, they kept adding up. I kept adding credits. I think I had at the time of getting my degree, I had 215 credit hours with the university mm. because of all my experience. Okay. Right? And we're talking, I mean, I had, you know, ex, you know, credits for seamanship. I mean, all my nuclear stuff, physics, math, chemistry, you know, all the stuff associated with my nuclear training. Yeah. But I had electronics training because I was an electronics technician, nuclear type. And so all that stuff translated. It's not just the nuclear power program that Thomas Edison State University does this with. They have it with every single job in the Navy. Okay. So it, now, granted, they may not have enough for a bachelor's degree, but they have programs like that. Okay. So I got, my, I got my bachelor's degree and the Navy will pay for each level of degree, the tuition for it. So you get your bachelor's and then you can work on your master's and you work on your doctorate. Right. I have friends in my, in my program that they're getting doctorates in nuclear engineering that the Navy is paying for. Okay. Wow. I mean, wow. yeah. And we don't, you know, I'm in this, you know, very academic group of people, very, very, you know, intelligent group, but we're also the guys that, you know, so if you, if you were to take my community, the nuclear power community, the Navy, it's made up of predominantly two groups of people. The people that didn't do their homework in high school and got C's and the people that drank their way out of college. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's, you know, it's this group of ragtag, you know, bunch of people that, you know, that's what they are. I mean, it's very extremely white and I'm trying to hope, hopefully, you know, bridge that gap, help, help your community get into this. I yeah. mean, and it's, it's, you know, nothing is, is racial about it. Right. Um, that I know of. I mean, it's just, you know, everyone, everyone can have these. Um, and I have, you know, I literally have examples. Carlos is a black man. Uh, Shatik is, is a man that I work with that, uh, that he's, a, he's got his SRO license, making 200,000 a year, just got qualified shift manager. Um, so mm. he's pushing, you know, when he gets a shift, he'll make a quarter million a year. Wow. Right. With, I mean, and he has his degree. I believe he has his degree. I don't know if he does. It kind of <laughs> doesn't matter. <laughs> right. Right. And, 
and so there's there's all these great things. Um, and one of the crazy things I've learned so much about the GI Bill, right, is there's a certified apprenticeship programs. Not every nuclear power plant in the U.S. has that. So just I know for the company I work for, they own uh, four different nuclear power plants. Two of them are, are certified. The other two are not. But different companies have, have achieved that certification. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, um, the other thing I learned is, is I went up to New York at the beginning of the year uh, to talk with, you know, some uh, with uh, Anthony Pompliano. I'm sure you know who he is. Right. We talk about nuclear and Bitcoin. And going yeah. back to our first conversation. And uh, I met with a guy named Lewis. Now, Lewis is a former Marine and he and a, gu- a couple of other guys from his unit, they were all getting out at a- around the same time. And one of them said, hey, we need to go to college in New York City. And, and Lewis and his other buddy, like, what do you mean we need to go to college in New York City? Yeah. He goes, well, the way the GI Bill works, the, specifically the post 11 GI Bill works, is that they pay for your tuition. Mm-hmm. And they give you a stipend for books. And then you okay. get E5 with dependent BAH, which for okay. New York City is, is $3,000 a month. Mm. Oh, I see what they're trying to do. Okay. <laughs> so they got an apartment for $3,000 a month Yeah. and split it three ways. So uh. now they're making $2,000 a month on top of all of that. Mm. Right. You know, so they pay their their thousand dollars a month in rent and then two thousand dollars a month. They have to live large in downtown Manhattan in their 20s, go into college. Right. And this is available to anyone who joins the military. Right. It doesn't matter. Marine Corps, Navy, Coast Guard, Space Force. It doesn't matter. Right. Right. And how many people know that? I didn't know that. Like I said, I got lucky. And, you know, learning more about this stuff. It's crazy. Um, if anybody, if anybody's not familiar with New York City, um, you know, to live in uh, Manhattan, period. And you said downtown Manhattan? Um, I think he lived um, down in the southeastern portion. Um, I don't remember. I, oh, that, man. I, I've only been there once. So. Yeah. You know, it's it's really expensive to live in Manhattan, um, downtown, especially down by Wall Street and go, uh, Bowling Green. But living there is just a lot of fun. I haven't lived there, but I've worked a lot of hours in the city and um the city's a lot of fun. New York City's a lot of fun. And to live there, like and, and also you don't need a car in New York City either, right? You know, you yeah. can just subway everywhere and you get there a lot faster. So yeah, man, I'm living it up. Okay, my bad. Go ahead. No, that was great. No, that was that was that was a great, a great um uh, explanation. And then um the other thing that's really crazy about military service is that if you're looking for a federal job, um, they have, when resumes go into the HR database, they're put into three tiers. And the bottom tier, the people that, you know, that that if no one else above them qualify for, then the resumes get sent to the, uh, uh, the hiring manager, right? And that's just the straight citizen off the street. If you're a, already a federal employee or a veteran, you're in tier two. And then tier three is the disabled veteran. So if you're a disabled veteran, there's let's say there's 100 people that apply for a job and you're qualified and you're the only disabled veteran that applies for it, the hiring manager only gets your resume. Oh, wow. <laughs> and disabled veteran does not mean you're in a wheelchair. Okay. Right? 
is a rating system. Being a disabled veteran means you have a 30% disability rating. I was out working in my yard all day long. I have a 70% rating. Wow. Right. And it's just from 20 years of service, right? I've got some back pain. I've got some knee pain, right? Things that are manageable. Yeah. Right. They're all, everything I have is manageable, but the, the Department of Veterans Affairs determines that I, I'm, I have a 70% rating. So therefore I qualify for all these jobs. If I want a government job tomorrow and I, I'm the only one, the only disabled veteran, I'm the only one that gets it. Oh, uh, and, and here's even better. If you know the hiring manager and you're a disabled veteran, he can name select you. He can bypass, so long as you're qualified, he can bypass the whole interview process and everything. You're a disabled veteran. You qualify for this job. I'm putting you in it. Ah, uh, okay. So, okay. Wow. Wow. Perks on and, top of so perks. That, yeah. Perks on top of perks. So that's, that's one of the huge benefits of, of military service. And I mean, and it's, it's amazing that if I'd have known all this stuff and, and I've got, I've got two kids graduating, they graduated high school this year. And I'm like, trying to beat this kind of stuff in their head and like they don't want to listen they don't want to listen to their dad i'm you know i, I don't know anything right um yeah <laughs> but uh you know i'm hoping that maybe i can help someone out there go oh that's you can actually do this stuff um yeah you can i mean it's it, i know people that are doing it these are all real stories that, that exist and i was you know i uh one of my last jobs in the navy i was working contracts at the shipyard and we'll talk about the shipyard too because i have so many great things that are going on in the nuclear industry, but, um, but I was dealing with these hiring panels and I remember it was like, okay, you know, getting these, you know, I did a couple hiring panels and it was always veterans, every, veterans or, or federal employees, every single one of them, it didn't matter. It mm. was crazy. Every single one, it was consistent. Like mm. never did I see an office street person get into them. Um, now granted I was working in the defense sector, so that's pretty common. I don't okay. know if say it's department of treasury or, um, you know, uh, Homeland Security, I know, is also uh, primarily um, veteran as well. Mm. Um, so I was working at that time, I was worked for the supervisor shipbuilding conversion repair for uh, Newport News shipbuilding. So there's a government office that's there was like 30 military and you know 500 civilian employees that they do oversight for the shipyard that builds our aircraft carriers and half of our submarines. That company, nuclear industry, right? That company is hiring 2,000 people before the end of this year. Mm. Mm. And these are like, you know, my, my wife just sent um, a job application to my son uh, for to be a pipe fitter. No experience needed, right? He's 18 years old, just graduated high school. To be a pipe fitter, starting starting hourly wage, $18 an hour. For an 18-year-old kid, that's, that's damn good money, right? Yeah, it's huge. Yeah. Especially down here where, where I live. That's not, I mean... You know that's that's pretty good money for being 18. Okay. Um, so we're looking to hire 2,000 people because they've got wow. multiple aircraft carrier contracts that are coming. So we're talking the Newport New Shipbuilding. Give you an idea. Um, they build all our aircraft carriers. They do the midlife overhaul of all our, our aircraft carriers, and they decommission, de de inactivate them. So right now you have the USS John F. Kennedy is being built. So in 50 years, that ship's going to be decommissioned. This right. company has, you know, a long history or a long future uh, going to it. The USS Enterprise or the C PCU Enterprise is under construction right now in the dry dock. And then the Dory Miller, named after a guy that uh, was a hero of uh, uh, Pearl Harbor, um, is the next one. It takes mm. seven years to build. So 14 years 
plus 50 years, plus four years to inactivate, right? This company has 80 years of work ahead of it. So it's not like, mm. you know, if you get a job there, they've got, you know, a longstanding, you know, job. Plus, you know, I think the Navy just signed another submarine contract. They've got to replace all the old submarines with new submarines. Submarines only last about 30 years. So mm. that's mm. all I, you know, that's the majority of my stuff I have in a nutshell. Um, all right. So, yeah, let me, let me, so, so first thing comes to my mind is, Nuclear energy is dangerous, right? We saw what happened with Fukushima, right? So, am I wrong in saying that, or or what happened with Fukushima? All right. So, I like saying this: Fukushima was the largest industrial accident to ever occur in the the history of humanity. You said it was what zero, the largest industrial accident to occur in in human history. We okay. we blew up three reactors. We melted down three. A total of four destroyed. Right. Mm. They're, they're operated in pairs. I'm not going to go into that detail. Zero people died. Right. There was a natural gas pipeline in, in April of last year down in North Carolina that blew up and killed three people. Mm. You never hear about that. Right. Right. So, I mean, the nuclear industry now and, and, and Fukushima, we're talking, you know, the large nuclear scale or large scale disaster based on a 1960s designed reactor. So these were designed with, you know, guys doing back of a paper, you know, calculation and, um, you know, they're, they're you're using slide rules. The calculator hadn't, hadn't even be, been invented yet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Shout, shout to, uh, real quick, shout to Sketch Therapy in the chat, holding me down and Kristen in the chat, holding me down. Appreciate y'all. My bad. Go ahead. No, that's great. Um, so, so yeah, it, Fukushima was a terrible accident. And I would say this, if if you took what the industry did because of Fukushima, and if that was applied literally the day before Fukushima happened, you would have heard in the news that the earthquake caused the reactor to shut down. They had to use this, this extra system, this extra equipment called BDB Flex, and they're going to be shut down for about six weeks, and then they bring the reactors back online. So the entire industry has changed because of Fukushima, and Fukushima made us safer. It's mm. it's a weird thing where you had these accidents and it made us safer. You think about Three Mile Island back in 1979, um, you know, the the common amongst the industry, and I actually know people who were like in the industry at that time frame, like because you know they work in it for so long. Um that they're like, it wasn't that Three Mile Island, that plant was the worst. They just had to be the one that had the accident. And the whole industry was, you know, the 80s and the 70s and 80s of nuclear was, I like to refer to as the wild, wild west. I mean, you went down to uh, every pressurized water reactor has what they call boric acid flats. They use boric acid to control it. And the stuff is a fine white powder when it dries. And it looked like, you know, we joked that it looked like a cocaine factory. <laughs> right. I mean, like, because it was just everywhere. You go down there now and it's extremely clean. Okay. Um, the, the, the containment structure, the structure that, that holds in the event of an accident, you know, would prevent, you know, uh, keep it all, all inside. So it's called the containment. They used to have to have a boat to get around in the basement of these things. Well, they fix that equipment and, and drain it out. Right. So mm. they actually, you know, do maintenance. They, they improved, they created something called the Institute of nuclear power operations. So basically it's funded by the utilities to regulate the utilities and their standards are higher than the government's. Mm. 
So, and if you walked into a pressurized water reactor, by the way, there's two types of reactors in the United States. There's pressurized water and boiling water. Those are the old legacy designs. Um, if you walked in any pressurized water reactor, you can see their grades compared to every other type mm -hmm. in the United States. So mm. you walk in there, you say, you know, say you're at um, uh, Palo Verde. Well, Palo Verde, and it's by unit even. So Palo Verde unit two is, you know, at the top at this, you know, as far as safety. Oh, but they their their fuel capability sucks. So they're down at the bottom. They had what's called a fuel limit failure, and they've they've had to you know deal with it, you know a lot of repair issues in that regards. So they grade each other, and Impo these teams that go out to evaluate the sites, mm -hmm. they're made primarily. You got you got the core group from Impo itself, and then you're going to go and you're going to evaluate a plant that you know say it's um, uh, Diablo Canyon owned by PG&E. You're going to have someone from Dominion. You're going to have someone from Entergy. You know, someone from Exelon that's going to staff that. So they're going to look for issues so that they can drive their own scores up. Mm. So it's literally using competition in an extremely good manner uh, for that. That's and that's you know, yeah, it's it's fascinating what the industry has done to to improve itself. Um, if you go with the safety record, uh, the nuclear and in, the nuclear industry is the safest power generation industry uh, in in the United States mm. um, and really worldwide. Uh, if you look at it, the wind turbines in UK, this is the, some weird statistic that I found, are killing over one person a month just from falls. Wow. Yeah, that's the wind turbines. And wind turbines are high on the safety scale okay. compared to others. Yeah. And the nuclear industry is like... Um, I think that the last death that the U.S. nuclear industry had for a you know that was not of natural causes, a heart attack or whatever, was 1990 something. Okay. So you know you're talking you know they, they, safety is a priority. I mean, you know you go into shift brief, it's opened with the safety topic. Right. Safety is a topic you you talk about whenever you brief a job. The way that we walk around and do jobs, it's you know. I'm going to go turn this valve, right? It's simple. Some of our jobs are extremely simple. I'm going to go turn this job, turn this valve, right? But I have to walk up. I'm 20 feet away from the valve. I pull out a card that's orange and it says, all right, I'm doing my job site review. All right, I have this safety feature. I have this thing to be concerned about. I have this thing to be concerned about. Oh, hey, you that's walking by. Hey, that's a trip hazard right over there. Be careful, right? And then I walk up and I go, all right, I need to be, you know, I walk up. And I, I grab my procedure and I pull up what's called the mark number. It's the little valve label that tells what it is. And I go, all right, this is one FP36. One FP36, it matches my procedure. I'm going to take it in the open direction, which is in the clock, you know, the counterclockwise direction. I'm going to open, I expect the, the stem to rise. I'm going to hear the water flow. You literally have to verbalize this even when no one is watching you. Mm. It's, it, it's like acting on steroids. It's crazy. Like you mm. overact everything. Mm. Um, you you walk up to a door, it's got signs on it. You go, all right, the sign says I have to have my hard hat, my safety glasses, and my hearing protection. And you check on it, right? It's a fire door. When I, I go through it, I have to check to make sure that it latches properly to keep the plant safe. Um, and there are signs everywhere that you're, you're constantly reading signs. Um, you know, a simple task that is just, oh, and by the way, before I even walked up to open that valve, my supervisor sent me out to go, walk the job down. I had to go walk out there, check the valve out, make sure the site, you know, make sure, you know, 
you know, maybe someone's out there and they're working on it. Hey, uh, I can't go do this. I don't have access to it. Mm. You know, things like that, you know, cause you're the eyes and ears of, of the, of the supervisor making 200, $200,000 a year. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's crazy when you look at it and you look at, you know, if those kinds of principles were applied in say that natural gas explosion that occurred in North Carolina, they probably wouldn't have had that issue. Mm. So it is an industry with a culture based around safety. So, um, you know, uh, so Fukushima, can you tell me what happened there and why, um, I guess the, the containment containers broke, right? They, they weren't containing. So, yeah. So the containments themselves actually did their job. So, okay. um, what you saw explode were the, the support buildings Okay. and the explosions were hydrogen, hydrogen gas was generated. And, um, so we'll work backwards from that. All right. So the hydrogen gas is generated because of something that's called the Zerk water reaction. So if you take it's steam at this point, because it's, you know, high temperature, we're talking uh, 2200 degrees. The the fuel itself, they're in these long, you know, they're like the thick of, thickness of a pencil, 10 feet long in these giant bundles. That metal coating that surrounds the actual uranium fuel is made of zirconium. And that zirconium, when it's in the presence of that water, it rapidly oxidizes and creates a lot of hydrogen gas, right? Think Hindenburg. Okay. So this hydrogen gas is, is, being, is being released, and the operators at Fukushima were venting it into the support buildings. Now, this is why I say three reactors melted down and three exploded, total of four destroyed. So you had a pair of reactors that they melted down, hydrogen gas was was being emitted into their support structures they got it to the high, right percentage they exploded the other unit that melted down its paired reactor was completely shut down defueled its fuel in, in the spent fuel pool and they, they were venting their hydrogen gas into this the other support building mm. so they could try to try to control it mm. The operators requested of the Japanese government to release, to vent that hydrogen gas into the atmosphere and were denied. Mm. If they would have vented that hydrogen gas, there would have been some radiation exposure to the public. We're talking on the scale of a dental x-ray, right? You go to the dentist, you get three or four x-rays, mm -hmm. right? We're talking one, one of those mm. over a year, over mm. a year's time frame, right? So very, very small amount of radiation. But the Japanese government were so concerned with that that they told them no, and they had to bottle that hydrogen up. They got to the concentration, hydrogen, oxygen. Yeah, you've got basically that's rocket fuel. That's what the, wow. the space shuttle used. The space shuttle used to, use to launch. So, okay. Yeah. Um, so that's what happened. So what and that, that's what happened in the end state to get to the fact that the the, the reactor core heated up so much was that they. Uh, the earthquake happened the, and it shut the reactors down and then they, they went under the emergency systems. These emergency systems are typically underground. Okay. So they're below, they're below the sea level. They're underground and that's for the purposes of a 9-11 type event. You know, someone ramming a plane in there, you don't want, you want to be able to keep, keep your, uh, your, you know, your safety systems online. So your most emergency systems are really low. Um, and so when the tsunami hit, it over they were they were they were rated for like a like a ten foot, and they were actually the tsunami is like twelve feet. Wow! And so it actually washed it out. 
What mm. you don't know about, you probably haven't heard about, is that there were two nuclear sites in Fukushima. Mm, yeah, Fukushima and Daiichi, six reactors, and it destroyed four of them, three meltdowns and three explosions, total of four destroyed. The other pair were defueled. Fukushima Daini, which is further south, um, it actually was able to recover because they were rated for like a 13 or 14 foot tsunami. Mm, mm, so they mm. were built later. Daiichi means in Japanese means one, Daini means two. Okay. So, so and those safety systems washed out. And so they weren't able to get the, the what's called core cooling. When you shut down a, a nuclear reactor, it's not like, you know, when you, when you turn off the stove, you know, you stop adding heat. Well, in nuclear power, you have something called residual heat. So you split an atom, right? You take a uranium atom and a neutron hits it and it splits. And now you've got two fission products. They're angry and they're, ex they're excited and they have, to get, get, they have to get rid of this energy. They get rid of this heat and light. Right. Well, when you shut down a nuclear reactor, about eight, your power output, we measure it in percentage. Right. So if you're 3000 megawatt core, 100 percent, you're generating 3000 megawatts of energy. Mm -hmm. When you shut it down, you have initially and it, it drops off over time but you have eight percent of your energy um, in residual heat. OK. Each one of those reactors, those three reactors, by the way, power wise is equivalent to. Let's see here. 15 aircraft carriers of energy. Wow. Yeah, so these are, yeah, they're huge, right? So their residual heat is two submarines of power. Wow. At full power, right? Yeah. And Navy reactors only operate about 30% on average just because they cycle their power up and down. Okay. And so that residual heat is what caused that temperature to get up to 2200 degrees that caused that reaction. Mm. So there are four reactors in the United States that is that are testing accident tolerant fuels. They're mm. eliminating that that outer zirconium layer, mm -hmm. and they're replacing it so you can't have that reaction. Mm. And it's actively being tested right now. Okay. For four reactors in the United States, there's other fuels that they're designing where the pellets are going to be so substantial. The actual fuel pots themselves are going to be able to handle never melting down mm. Mm. so yeah and then when you get into some of the new design reactors um is that they can actually handle full-on events without a meltdown and we actually know this is true so in 1986 there was an experimental reactor known as ebr2 which stood for Exper experimental uh breeder reactor 2. it didn't use water as a coolant it used molten sodium so Sodium, like you have table salt, which is made of sodium and a chloride atom. So they, it's a metal. Sodium is a metal when it's in its, it, when it's by itself. And they heat it up to the point of being a liquid. Mm. And they actually put it through a worse than Fukushima event. So they were online. They overrid their, their safety systems. And then they basically shut off the cooling, which is basically what happened at Fukushima. They lost their cooling. The reactor shut itself down in five minutes on its own. It jumped to a temperature and stayed there because metal conducts heat so well. Okay. Right. So it basically that heat from that fuel is just being transferred all the way out rapidly. Ah, uh, uh, I see what you're saying. Right? Yeah. Steam yeah. makes a blanket, and it steam makes makes a blanket holds that heat in. Right. You know, you you put your mm. blankets on as a cover, but yeah. if you're lying, like you, you lie in that cold like a cold steel floor, and it, you you could just feel the sucking the heat out of you. That's mm. basically what happened. 
Mm. So, and mm. there are reactors being designed to do that. And the, this one thing where the Russians are actually ahead of us, they have a large scale commercial reactor that's, that runs on this. And when you use, start using different fuels, this Russian reactor is using nuclear waste for fuel. <laughs> so they're recycling. <laughs> they're recycling nuclear waste right now. Wow. The Russians are something else, man. Yeah. Well, and we're working on that. We, we right. have companies that are, that are out there working on that. It's it's what what they're what, what is in the in store for the nuclear energy. You've got me switching hats from my job to my advocacy now, which is okay. a lot of fun because I, I I love talking to, talking about all this stuff. All but right. the different designs that are coming out are super cool. Like you know whether it's I mean and they they're all basically going away from water as they're coolant, but it's like it and they're some of them are super small. So, and, and I like I like pushing, there's a company called Oaklo and Oaklo literally, the, the the whole US shut down for the pandemic. And mm -hmm. they said, here's our license submittal. <laughs> so they submitted their license to the US NRC to get their, to get their reactor design, which is a new advanced design. And yeah. it's gonna run on the, it's, it's, it's initial fuel load on is the waste from EBR2. Mm. Um, so we're gonna recycle waste in the US mm. and, uh, but their reactor is 1.5 megawatts, which is about enough to power about a thousand homes. Mm. And it'll fit mm. on a quarter acre. That's like, you know, your standard parcel in a, in a, in a suburban mm -hmm. community. Yeah, yeah. So quarter acre can't melt down. Wow. And yeah, it's, it's really cool. I, 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 their, their design is super cool. And there's, there's lots of them out there. All right. Last question on Fukushima. They said there was a leak, right? And you may have answered this already. I may have missed it. What exactly was leaking into the ocean? All right. So there was a lot of water that they had to pump into. Um, to try and into cool. The, yeah, to try and cool it, right? So they're pumping yeah. in water. And so you do have, um, there was leakage that occurred because of that, right? Mm. Which is, um, you know, you're talking absolutely large quantities of water here. And so in, in the industry, we refer to it as dilution as a solution. But it's really um, the, the, the isotope of concern is what's called tritium. If we go back to my little, my big giant crazy chart, the decoder ring for the universe, mm -hmm. there's seven different types of hydrogen. Okay. Right. Wow. You go, your, okay. you go, to, you go to a periodic table, right? You got hydrogen all the way up in the upper left-hand corner. Yeah. Number one. Right. Yeah. Number one. Right. Yeah. Well, there's seven flavors of it on my chart. <laughs> right. <laughs> so all that, all that tritium is just fancy hydrogen. Right. Okay. So, right. So it's uh, it's number one on the chart because it has one proton. Right. There's seven different types of tritium because there's one with just a proton, and there's one with one neutron, two neutrons, three neutrons, all the way up to six. Okay. Okay. So tritium, and this is the scary the scary word, is just a a proton with two two neutrons attached. It's a type of hydrogen. Mm. It exists naturally in the in in the world. It's created in the upper atmosphere from radiation bombarding the planet from the sun. Yeah. We also generate it in nuclear reactors. So I always joke, and I'll say this, I'm, I'm drinking my, my wine here because, you know, I'm white as sour cream. But um, there's tritium in this, so I'm going to you know, toast you with some of my tritium here. <laughs> so, so do we have something to fear? Because obviously there's a certain amount of doses that someone can 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 take right and can resist yeah. right so, so so you know are are the sharks going to grow like 
three guys now or? No, no, it's not. I mean, when you're talking the overall dosage that the sharks are going to get with the amount, when you dilute it out there, I mean, we're talking over their lifetime, they're going to receive maybe 10 millirem of additional radiation. Um, And for context, you get somewhere between 150 and 500 millirem in your, in, in a year. Okay. Right. So we're talking, you know, 10 extra over their lifetime, right? A shark lives, say, 30, mm. 40 years. It might mm. get 10 extra millirem. Mm. Um, you know, and I like trying to use that comparison. Uh, and it's, So we don't it, have anything to worry about. We don't have anything no. to worry about then. Okay. No, you don't have anything to worry about. Like, okay. like it's it's funny. I watched, there was an article about Fukushima, and, and I'm not afraid to talk about the accidents, and I actually like talking about them. Um, there was an article where they talked about that so-and-so was on this dangerous area, and I, and they, they, Every article will switch up the units on me. Okay. Right. You can measure radiation like 40 different ways, or you can, there's a unit, four different units for it. So I go okay. through and I'm, I pull out my little calculator, you know, nerding it out and I find it. And I go, that's 10 millirem an hour. I'm like, you can stand there for a year and never get radiation sickness. Like, wow. <laughs> yeah. Like, Cause you know, you say it to a layman and I'm just like, wow, you know, that's gotta be a lot. Right. Like we don't know anything about, you know, these, these, uh, sciences right so it sounds like a lot to us but i you know if you're a nuclear guy like yourself you're saying it's just it's not even that bad if you were standing right next to the fukushima plant yeah i mean it's it's not bad i mean that's the the that's what i love about about talking about this is that trying to find that layman's term and and um uh if your followers connect me i have six tickets to a discussion on nuclear energy that i'm being part of on tuesday and my specific talk about topic is to how to translate this into layman's terms, right? And that's that's probably the biggest challenge of the industry, right? Mm. And trying to explain it, you know, using details and, and you know pictures and you know simplify, 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 right? I mean, I went really technical. It go and it's easy to get really technical. Um, our mutual friend Scott Adams had me on, and okay. and. Uh, my, my very first, you know, one of my very first podcast experience. And he goes, I want you to explain to me what happened with these. And I said, water. And he goes, you're being too technical. And I'm like, damn, I really have to have to change my game on all this stuff. Uh, so I have been practicing and working on it. And that's what I love about stuff like this is that I can come up, you know, with a guy like you and say, hey, how can I bring this out, teach people about it, and they could become experienced with it. Um, and, yeah. you know, I have a lot of fun with it. And uh, I think I think I was working one night and I, I was getting ready to go into our containment. Uh, we were in an outage. We shut the reactor down, do some maintenance on it. We have to wear what we call protective clothing. I'm literally dressed. I've got my hard hat that's got a cover on it. I've got a hood on that's covering all of my face. I've got a, a suit that covers up. I've got gloves on my hands. I've got booties over my feet. And then I've got rubber insoles over those. And then I've got my ridiculous, you know, COVID required mask, even my, my, my dosimeter, the things tells me how much radiation I'm going to be getting. It has PPE. My flashlight has PPE. Like <laughs> it's ridiculous, right? We, we, yeah. we have these covers and, and I, I sent it to Scott and he, he quoted out there being like, um, get back, get back in your penis, penis suit. <laughs> <laughs> Management probably. And, like, and then I realized like, oh yeah, you put me all in one color. And I'm wearing a hard hat. Yeah, that that totally. I'm <laughs> right now, 
Um, <laughs> that's le- so you said you have six tickets. You, you technically have five because I'm taking one of those. You're um, taking one of those? All right. <laughs> I'm taking one of those. How can people access these tickets for this Tuesday event? And what time is it? Um, if uh, Let's see here. I, I will have to look up that time. I don't remember. Oh, that's fine. That. Um, um, if they want to, my, my uh, DMs are open on uh, Twitter. They can just shoot me a DM on Twitter and I will uh, give, give them the link. Um, it'll be the first six and I will ask for more because they told me I could get more. And if I get more, okay. then the next ones in the queue will get it. Okay. Awesome. Good job. So, um, your website and what you do as a hobby, tell me about that. Um, so, uh, what I do as a hobby is I'm, I'm promoting nuclear energy and I'm, I'm taking it from a, a different stance than a lot of people. Uh, if you look at nuclear advocates, there's, they come in two flavors. You've got the environmentalists and you've got the engineers. Right. Environmentalists don't understand the technology. Engineers are don't know how to speak human. Um, so <laughs> I'm neither of those. Right. I'm an operator. I, my degree is in nuclear engineering technology. The technology means that I actually put my hands on things. So, you know, I, you know, there was the blue collar guy. You know, I, I clean, you know, in the neighborhood, we call them shitters. Right. I've cleaned, you know, toilets and scrub floors. You know, I'm not afraid to get my hands dirty. I'm not afraid to get sweaty and and all that stuff. Whereas, you know, the engineers, you know, you think pocket protector. Yeah, that's what we are in our industry. A bunch of guys, pocket protector, super nerding it out. And so I, I see my role as kind of a translator and all that to take these large engineering concepts and translate it into, you know, the English language because we don't speak English. Yeah. Um, we speak some weird nuclear speak that, you know, trying to explain it to people is extremely hard. And we yeah. pick the worst words. We pick the absolute worst words. Like... <laughs> If I were to tell you a nuclear reactor is critical, what does that mean to you? A nuclear reactor is critical. I would say that means it's probably breaching some sort of limit. In our industry, that means it is stable and safe. What? Okay, that makes sense. All right. So yeah, you guys yeah. are definitely speaking another language. Yeah. So I mean, it, now if you when you talk about it, there is a moment and this is a and the reason why it's called critical is it was the critical moment in bringing a reactor online, meaning that it is creating its own neutrons. Mm. And so it's creating as many neutrons as it's using. So that's mm. why it's called the critical moment. It's, mm. It became from the word critical moment is oh, this is critical. You know, some nerd in the 50s called it that. So we're stuck with this stupid word. I got you. Wow, wow, wow. Um, So you basically take, your hobby is to take this uh, technical jargon and turn it into layman's terms. Yeah. Interesting, interesting. So um, how do you do this? Is it like through uh, online classes, you travel and tour and do this, or is it a combination of both? Um, so I do, uh, I, I, I was doing Periscope, um, but uh, with COVID, I typically try to do it when my family is at home, but my wife's been working from home. Um, I'm thinking about jumping on the locals and then doing okay. some more detailed content and then, you know, just doing a subscription charge for a lot of that. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking about doing that. I have done a lot of Periscope. I, I used to use Periscope as my big way of doing it. Um, um, but uh, I do travel. Uh, I do podcasts like this. Um, yeah, I, I did the Anthony Pompliano. I've been on, I've been on with Scott a couple of times. Uh, I did, uh, went to the Phyllis Schlafly event as a speaker. I did uh, a collegiate thing up in, up in, um, uh, Washington, DC. 
Um, and so it's just, you know, primarily, you know, uh, a lot of podcasts, the biggest thing, radio interviews, all that stuff, just trying to, you know, explain this stuff in a manner that works. Um, and so that's my biggest method. Uh, and then, yeah, so that's, that's kind of what I do. It's a lot of fun. I mean, I, I have to admit, I have a lot of fun doing it. And I, I really appreciate these conversations over um, talking with my own industry because my own industry is really excited to talk to each other, mm-hmm. but they're not, they're, they're not, I, I could not imagine any other advocate coming on to, ho- coming on with Hotel Jesus, literally can't even <laughs> imagine it. Yeah. Because it's they, definitely... yeah. Go ahead. And it's, and it's fun. It's fun because, you know, you're going to ask these questions and, you know, when when people ask me, you know, what what are the what are the issues that are that, that people have about the nuclear industry? I was talking three things: waste, weapons, and meltdowns, right? And you have to answer all three of those questions over and over and over again. And literally, I was talking with one of my fellow advocates, and and he had the uh, the libertarian candidate on his on his podcast, and he wanted me to t- you know tweet it out. And I'm like, I'm not tweeting this out. You didn't ask her any hard questions. <laughs> you didn't ask her any hard questions. You asked her, okay. you, you softballed all your questions and you didn't, you know, waste weapons of meltdown. What, how, what are her, what, how is she going to explain to the American public how waste weapons of meltdown and how, how they are, how you should not be concerned with that? And he mm. goes, well, that's just a red herring. I'm like, you mean the three biggest issues that the public has is a red herring? <sighs> no, that is the problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think so, nuclear energy, I think, you know, danger. Daniel Hawk, $5 super chat. He said, liquid fluoride thorium reactor technology would change the world. What are your thoughts on that? I have no idea what he's talking about. Um, so so he's talking about a molten salt reactor. So different coolants. Sodium, right? sodium, liquid. sodium as a liquid. Okay. So yeah, so we have molten as a sodium. hot liquid. So he's talking is a hot liquid, yeah. So there's liquid metal and there's liquid salt. The, 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 what he's talking about is a liquid salt um, reactor. So that's one aspect he's talking about is the, is the lithium fluoride salt, right? So sodium fluoride is table salt. This is just a different kind of salt, right? Heated up, it, it actually flows and looks like water when you get it, when you get it hot enough. Okay. Um, and then the other thing he's talking about is thorium as a fuel. So the United States, there's three principal fuels that we use in the nuclear industry. You've got uranium, which is what every reactor in the United States uses. You've got plutonium, which is what the reactor out in um, uh, Russia is using, the one that's running off of waste. That's the waste, by the way, that everyone's concerned about is plutonium. So it's just fuel for a different type of reactor. And then mm-hmm. the third one is thorium. And so thorium, literally you walk outside your house, you scoop up some dirt, you're gonna find some thorium, extremely abundant. Mm. Um, and it's just another heavy element you have to, create, you have to transmute it as a term. You have to turn it into uranium, a different kind of uranium. Um, but what's fascinating about that is that instead of having the fuel and rods, I can literally um, put my my fuel into the coolant and it's just a liquid. Mm. And so I can keep adding fuel. I don't have to worry about shutting the reactor down to add fuel like we do now. Mm-hmm. I can just keep adding small amounts of fuel into it and mm. just keep the reaction going. That's a mm. great, a great comment. And he covers my basis. If I don't, if you don't do a podcast talking about nuclear and you fail to talk about thorium, you're going to have the, the cult of thorium come after you. Okay. Um, so I appreciate that comment. Um, that's th- things that I work, I deal with in my industry is I have to talk about Chernobyl. I have to talk about Fukushima and I have to talk about thorium. Yeah. Um, otherwise you have your cultist following. 
Um, and if you want to talk about Chernobyl, it was a bad design. Government was too involved in a test. They didn't have a containment. And so they blew the thing up and killed 31 people. So, okay. So what about the after effects now of Chernobyl? And, you know, it created this desert, right? Yeah. By desert, you mean lush green forest? Is that true? Yeah. <laughs> so it's not true and, that the, the the plants are all dead out there and they can't grow. That's a lot. No, it's it's like. Oh, like, my it, God. Oh yeah, there, um, have you ever watched the series Life After People? No. So there, there's a series where basically they take different. Where's this? Is this on Netflix, Netflix or something? Um, it was on uh, the History Channel. Okay, I, gotcha. I, 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 I was watching it ten years ago. Okay. But the series was based off of a documentary on the exclusion zone of Chernobyl. So the exclusion zone of Chernobyl, basically, and one of the things they did was they followed a cat. Mm-hmm. They followed this cat around and this cat, you know, is hunting and it's going inside and outside the exclusion zone and is ultimately adopted by a family at the end. Okay. Having no idea this thing is living in a radioactive forest. Yeah. Right. But the cancer rates amongst the animals are in line with those that live outside the exclusion zone. Right. Okay. So it's a lush forest. Like the this the town of Priapet, which is was the, the city that was next to it that basically staffed the power plant. Right. It like is being overtaken by the by the forest. <laughs> so what does it mean then that this thing is radioactive? That doesn't necessarily mean bad or what does that mean? It means it produces radiation. Okay. That's what radioactive means. Right. So I talked about that neutron hits the the uranium mm-hmm. atom and it splits and mm-hmm. they're ener- they're energetic. That's all mm-hmm. that that's what I'm saying they're high, they're highly angry. That's right. what radioactive means. Right. Right. So tritium is radioactive. It's it wants to release energy. Right. So it releases energy in a variety of different ways. We won't get into the details on that, but there are radioactive things everywhere in our world. Mm-hmm. Banana is a common thing that people eat for breakfast. Did you happen to eat a banana this morning? No, but I've eaten plenty of bananas. <laughs> yeah, it, it contains potassium forty-one or potassium one forty. I can't remember. Don't don't quote me on the exact one. But it contains a radioactive form of potassium. Mm. And you've consumed that and you mm. don't know anything about it. Mm. Right. Um, you will get more. Ra- I would I would bet that you would get more radiation on the flight to the Ukraine or to Ukraine. Sorry, it's Ukraine. The Ukraine takes away their sovereignty on a flight to Ukraine. You would get more radiation from that flight than a trip and then a visit to the, the Chernobyl control room. Wow. Wow. So, you know, they there I'm sure there's a Netflix documentary on Chernobyl. I haven't got a chance to watch it yet. Um, and you're basically saying this was just some sort of mismanagement and uh lack of understanding of nuclear energy. Yeah, so it was a a series, a large series of errors. You have you have a, a poor design. Just their design is flawed. Their the RBMK is the design, it's just a, a, a horribly designed reactor. Um, it didn't have a negative feedback loop for temperature, meaning that, you know, when temperature rose in our plants, that that causes the power of the reactor to go down. So mm-hmm. it develops a stable equilibrium. Mm-hmm. As temperature rose in the RBMK, it causes power to go up, which causes temperature to go up, which causes power to go up. Mm-hmm. Right. And so you just mm-hmm. you see that cascading effect. Yeah. Right. So horrible design. Yeah. Um, they didn't have a containment structure. So if I took an RBMK reactor and I stuck it in a U.S. containment, and we underwent that death and had that exact that that exact accident occur. The reactor would have exploded, 
inside the containment structure and the containment structure would have held everything in place. Mm. So you have flawed design, failure to design a safety feature around it. Mm-hmm. And then, oh, they ran this test that wasn't being run. And not only was the test, you know, it was, we'll, we'll get more detail about the test because I think you'll find that fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. But it was other, there are other uh, plants that had RBMKs. They all declined to do it. They still, there are a few still operating in uh, Russia. Uh, all the ones at Chernobyl been, were shut down in the, by the 90s, I think. Um, but these other plants refused to do that test. Mm. Mm. So, so the test was being refused, and basically they found a KGB agent that basically pushed the plant to do it. Wow. So, and here's what's funny about, or what's, yeah, we'll, we'll say funny. Here's what's funny about that test. The idea about the, behind the test was in case the United States attacked one of their power plants and blew up the switchyard where the power goes out to the grid, how would they respond as the turbine coasted down to keep the reactor from melting down? <laughs> it wouldn't matter at that so, point if you're being attacked. Yeah, yeah well, I mean, well, I mean so, this is, so this is basically, um, so what they're doing is they're trying to bridge the gap until those bunker safety systems came online. Oh, okay, they're right, allowing right, right. The, So you, you kill the grid, right? The reactor's gonna trip and then you have the big turbine and okay. it's, gonna, it's gonna coast down and they wanna use that that energy that's being generated to power the systems until their emergency diesels would come up online mm. and keep the reactor safe. So mm-hmm. literally it was a safety test that turned into the biggest nuclear accident ever in in his in, in history. And it exploded. It exploded. But it was not a nuclear explosion. It was a uh, heat explosion. It was it was a steam explosion. Okay. So uh-huh. you know if you take if you take a jar, right? And you and don't ever do this at home. Mm. You take a jar, you put some water in it, and you, you put it on a, on a burner, right? It's going to get hot yeah. and it's going to explode. Well, I said that heat, it kept getting hotter and hotter. Well, you get to mm. a point where you cannot keep that as water and steam takes 19,000 times the space of water. So that's a lot of rapid pressure. Yeah. And so it, it blew up and, and literally, you think like a tin can is their, the actual reactor vessel. Uh-huh. It blew the bottom out. And it blew the top, the lid flipped like three or four times and then landed back down. Oh, wow. Oh, my God. That's crazy. Um, Daniel Huck said, Nagasaki and Hiroshima don't look like Minneapolis right now. Radiation is not dangerous. Nagasaki and Hiroshima, what was that big boy and little guy or something like that? Yeah, yeah. uh, 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 little, Little boy and fat man. Little boy and fat man. Thank you. Yeah, that was the bombs we dropped on. He said, don't look like Minneapolis right now. Radiation is not dangerous. We're going to have to talk about that. He also said, no safe threshold policy of radiation has created fear in the public to the detriment of the nuclear industry. So let's talk about um, Fat Man and Little Boy. Um, Now, that bomb that we created, um, the radiation wasn't what killed the people. I guess it's the explosion itself is what kills people. So, because they talk about cancer rates afterwards too, among the Japanese. They do. So what you have here is you have, um, you know, a large scale, basically radiate. So it's a combination of heat, light energy. And a lot of that is radiation that comes out. Um, And then you have uh, those fission products. A lot of those are extremely radioactive. Right. And so we don't want that 
And when you're looking at the quantities uh, that occurred in that, so they, they detonated it and immediately following. So the generation, the boomers basically um, took all of it, mm. right? A after about, you know, really, you know, 20 years, 20, 30 years, all those radioactive constituents that would cause all that are gone. From just erosion? And... Just decay, right? Decay. So okay. when, that, when, when it releases the radiation that causes, you know, that, that is the potential cause of that cancer, mm -hmm. um, that is, uh, that's, it becomes a stable state and it becomes no longer radioactive or it switches to a different element and it's less radioactive. So it's giving off that energy. Mm. So what, what he's talking about is Hiroshima and Nagasaki today are extremely, you know, beautiful cities that are well-maintained. Uh, my wife lived in Japan for six months before I met her. And, you know, she said it was absolutely amazing going and seeing these cities. You've got the, there's uh, the temple that was literally directly below the detonation. that's mm. still partially standing and it's, mm. it's not, it's on, un, it's unchanged. Mm. Um, but the whole city is just vibrant. Um, and one of the things that you'll find when you have some kind of incident is when you start looking for specific types of cancer, you'll see an elevated rate, not because the cancer is unhealthy, but because you weren't testing for it. And uh, now you're testing for it, right? So uh, now you're, you're, you're creating, you know, kind of your own, your own dialogue or your own story with that, because you may not have developed and say, oh, they've got thyroid cancer. Well, they may have had a low-level thyroid cancer that the body would just manage on its own. And by the way, there are studies that will show if you have too little radiation, that's just as harmful, if not more harmful for you, than more radiation. Oh, my God. Mark, <laughs> you blow my mind tonight, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I really don't understand this nuclear energy. Um, somebody in the chat said nukes don't exist. Is that true? Um, what is he? I don't know I, what he's trying to say with that. I wonder if he's talking about weapons because I slept between them. Yeah, he's probably talking about weapons. Yeah, I slept between them. They exist. <laughs> <laughs> I have another question here that popped up in the chat. Let me find it. It had a whole bunch of numbers in there. Ah, wait, I passed it. Um, shout out to Sketch Therapy holding me down. He's a phenomenal job. Um, so let's talk about Uranium One, right? There's a Uranium One deal where uh, I believe Hillary Clinton was involved in uh, selling some uranium to the Russians. What's going on with that deal? All right. Most of my right-wing friends do not like my answer to this. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> Most of the fuel that the United States is using we purchased from Russia because they did the hard job for us. <laughs> they enriched it for us and they made it into weapons and then we bought it. <laughs> so by selling it to them, we're basically using them as a service to make the, and by the way, that, that uranium is that high of concentration yeah. is useful for the U S we'll, we'll, what's called down blending it to okay. put it into our own uh, reactors. And then, the U.S. military uses a much purer grade of uranium than the commercial industry uses. Okay. So they do all the hard work for us. Um, so we're sending them something to process. Yeah, that's basically what it is. Okay. As we are getting our own processes up, right? We, 
because of this giant purchase that Reagan made in the 1980s, we shut most of our ability to enrich, that's the technical term, the ability to, to get the uranium at a level that we need. So we have to get those services back up. So by selling it to them, the Russians can do that and then we can purchase it from them. We are mm. getting that stuff back online and we'll be mm. able to do that again. But Uranium One, I, I'm going to tell you, it's a pretty much a non-event from, from my perspective. <laughs> Mark, come on, man. You keep shattering my hopes and dreams, man. You're shattering <laughs> all my conspiracy theories. Oh, my God. I feel like such an idiot because I've been talking about a lot of this stuff over the past year. It's like, oh, Fogoshaba is dangerous and Uranium One. And you're like, ah, uh, you're fake news, Hotep Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I found the other question. He says, uh, ask Mark about energy fuels, S-Y-M-U-U-U-U, and the upcoming uranium bull market. Currently, we import 100% of our uranium, but some say that will change. Um, so I'm not about? specifically sure what that acronym he's talking about um, is, but uh, um, as far as uranium bull market, uh, the United, or the president and... Uh, the Secretary of Energy and the, sec the, uh, the Undersecretary for the Office of Nuclear Energy um, have signed uh, decrees to bring nuclear mining and processing back to the United States. So that is going to happen. Um, there's a mine out in Western Virginia that's potential. There's They're all over the place. So we're going to bring uranium mining back to the United States, bring some of that manufacturing. Right now, most of our uranium comes from Australia. Um, and there's a couple other places uh, as far as the, the, the source uranium. Um, so that's, that's the, the big thing with that. As far as uranium bull market that is coming, um, when you look at it, the, currently right now there's 460 operating nuclear reactors around the United States that all run on uh, uranium as fuel. Um, there are 55 under construction I believe that a reactor in the UK is about to be approved. Uh, Egypt's about to build four. These are not on the list of to be built. Uh, India is supposed to build like 20. The president of Poland and, the pre and President Trump just signed an agreement to build nuclear in Poland. So there is a, you know, if you look worldwide, I think the 53 reactors and you take their average power level um, and the amount of power they're going to generate, it's like, and you compare it to the renewables. This is the big thing that they, the renewables talk about. There's actually more energy that's going to come out of those reactors under construction than all the renewables being built worldwide. Mm. So there is a huge amount of increase in nuclear. Um, and then Japan just restarted their high temperature gas cooled test reactor. So Japan, right, side of Fukushima, they're restarting their nuclear. Okay. So, Ukraine is looking at expanding their nuclear. So the nations that have the two worst nuclear accidents are going, yeah, we need this stuff still. <laughs> um, so, how do you extract uranium? Are you extracting this from the earth? Are you- Yeah, it's it's a metal that's just found in the earth. Um, uh, have you heard the term yellow cake? No. So yellow cake is, is a powdered form of uranium that's unrefined. And then you refine it um, into uh, so the process, and, and I'll go through this, this process to, to how they enrich it. Um, and they transform it into a gas called uranium hexafluoride. And then they spin it in centrifuges, right? So you hear the term centrifuges thrown a lot. Iran, Iran has some of these. 
And that basically makes the heavier uranium, which is uranium-238. It separates out to the outside. Uranium-235 separates the inside. Uranium-235 is standard nuclear fuel for the reactors we use in the United States. They process these gases back into solids. The uh, United States Army loves our depleted uranium, the uranium-238. They make rounds out of it. They make tank armor because it's heavy and dense. And then the uranium-235 goes and and uh, gets put into reactors to be fueled. Mm. Mm. Now, mm. that uranium-238 can become nuclear fuel. Okay. So if I put that uranium-238 into a reactor, and we do, so when I say enriched, um, natural uranium is 0 0.7 of the 235 and 99.3% of the 238. A commercial reactor in the U.S. uses somewhere between 2 to 5% U-235 with the remainder being uranium-238. That uranium-238 is in a neutron flux because nuclear reactors produce neutrons and they'll absorb a neutron. It doesn't split. It's now excited, wants to give off energy. Well, it releases an electron from the nucleus of the, react of, of the, of the atom and now it's Neptunium. Mm. Neptunium well, it absorbs the neutron, becomes uranium-239, releases that, that little electron Mm -hmm. an electron and now it's neptunium 239 mm -hmm. and then a few days later it releases another electron it becomes plutonium 239 mm -hmm. which is fuel mm -hmm. so i could put that fuel in say a sodium cooled reactor like the bn 800 in russia and now i can power it so if you use numbers and i'm sure your audience would love to hear this if we went to peak power demand and uh, i was talking with the uh the ceo of lightbridge which is a fuel a nuclear fuel company. He says peak power demand that they expect for planet Earth is 21,000 um, gigawatt, yeah, gigawatts of continuous energy. So you need 21,000 nuclear reactors to do that. So they're okay. expecting if we were 100% powered from nuclear energy, 21,000 reactors, we have 450, it's 10% of the planet's power. So this is five times the power that we actually have right now. Mm. We have a thousand years of uranium 235 available to us. Mm, wow. If we Insane. use a fast reactor that uses that plutonium, we have a quarter million years. Wow. If I use thorium, I add three quarters of a million years. I have a million years of energy available. <laughs> <laughs> who 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 discovered this radioact this this uh science of radioactivity um there's uh, a lot of people but uh, if you go to the heavier elements on your your periodic table you'll see one uh you'll see names like seaborgium and curium um they're named after the people that discovered a lot of this stuff madame curie um okay. whom the term for radioactive material the curie came from okay uh, seaborgium there's a there he's a danish man there's a company called seaborg technologies that they have a uh uh a, a liquid salt reactor, molten salt reactor that they they're designing. Um, so it's a lot of European uh, uh, and um, uh, U.S. scientists for the most part. There's even Einsteinium. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. How many elements are there? Oh, 113 now, I think. I'm not. It, I'm not sure. Yeah. It, it, it keeps updating. They keep finding more. It's 144. 
Is it 144? All right. <laughs> it, but we just haven't discovered them all. Don't ask me how okay. I know that. I can't tell you. If I tell you, I have to eliminate you. I have to neutralize you. <laughs> you have to all right. I, 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 was, I was in the military. I won't ask any more questions. 144. You know, that actually, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step up and see what my chart has up here. This is an outdated chart. So Okay. I have 118 on my chart. Okay. Um, and they keep discovering new ones. Yeah. I've been to the lab that actually that actually creates that it created that chart. I, I spent six weeks there being trained. Okay. Um, to actually work on my little submarine back there, they taught nice. me how to operate it. Okay. So, yeah, it was super dope, cool. Dope. I've, I've, yeah, I've done some cool, cool stuff uh, as far as you know. Um, you know, I, I, it's one of the things that's interesting is uh, this is a, a fun story to tell. I've been in, I did a year where I played soldier. I was a Navy fish out of water. And I carried a rifle around like a soldier. I did a convoy in Iraq. I was all over the country, right? All over, you know, Iraq and Kuwait. <clears throat> Scariest thing I've ever done is an emergency reactor startup on a submarine. <laughs> <laughs> Way scary to be in Iraq. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Oh, I, 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 I literally, there was, I, I can't get into the details because of the classified nature of some of this stuff. Right. But I had an event that occurred where literally I was like, I was giving some stupid nomenclature about something and I go, Oh my God, shimming out. And I was like, <laughs> and then I went to the bathroom later and I, I crapped out five diamonds. Um, cause I had that much pressure and freaking, you know, in my, in my rectum, it was freaking, yeah, I have literally the most, and I think it was more, I don't think I would have broke the reactor and would have caused a problem, but it was just that the, the sudden change in energy that I didn't expect in that plant. And the, Military reactors are operated extremely different, different, differently than commercial reactors, uh, right? The, the change in power level you do on a commercial reactor is done over days. I could do that in, in 30 seconds on a, uh, on a aircraft carrier submarine. Okay. So very different type of operation, you know, commercial reactor, very slow controlled approaches, yeah. you know, you know, you make a change of one or 2% of power. It's, you know, you bring in extra people. I mean, we did this thing out of a Liberty call in freaking Hawaii, right? And we're pretending like the hurricane is coming. And, you know, you intentionally put yourself at a, at a pressure and temperature that's challenging to okay. challenge yourself. So that's that. Oh, wow. Let's get into some super chats. Thank you, everybody. Uh, Kristen Mana. 199 super chat thank you Kristen. always holding me down love 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 you um grs said really enjoying the program tonight can't wait to share it with my teen daughter and encourage her into the nuclear program hell yeah i'm about to talk to my kids about this uh david muschetti uh excellent breakdown i think another topic of concern uh to cover for people concerned with nuclear energy would be the rad waste processing and then i have another person here says uh just blaze what up jb he says what are your thoughts on cold fusion so we're talking about rad waste processing and cold fusion what do you know about this stuff all right um i am not an expert in fusion so um so fission we take a big heavy element we split it fusion we take small elements down in that hydrogen helium range we fuse them together and it you know makes a lot of heat and energy that's how the sun works um so uh, as far as I know that there's a lot of things with fusion going on, but it always seems like it's 30 years away, right? Mm -hmm. Although I think there was a recent thing where they're saying, we're going to beat Gen 4. And I'm like, well, you're kind of behind already because there's already <laughs> the Russians are doing it. Sorry, they've been doing it since 2016. So you're behind. Um, <laughs> it's just getting the others caught up. Russians um, have been doing what? 
uh, operating a Gen 4 reactor. Okay. So you got different generations, right? So right, Gen right. 1 were the test reactors. We actually melted a bunch of those down in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, Gen 2 is uh, the large-scale reactors that the U.S. has, uh, designed in the late 50s, 60s, and 70s, slide rules, right? Uh, Gen 3 designed in the 90s, Gen 4 uh, designed recently, and the difference between them all is, is there's an increased level of safety. So at Gen 3, I've got three days to get, you know, reestablish my my cooling mechanisms. Uh, Gen 4 is unlimited. I, I can mm. go forever. I can basically walk away and it's safe. Wow. Um, you know, and wow. a lot of them are designed where you can, you know, operate 30 reactors from a room hundred, hundreds of miles away. Um, that's, that's one of the things, um, as far as the radioactive waste, I think was the question. So waste is defined in basically two types. You've got low level and high level waste. Um, so the low level waste is, uh, basically it's, it's things that develop radioactivity because it's passing through the reactor core that's emitting these new neutrons and they absorb it. And so, you know, this is stuff uh, it's, and, but they don't have a very long half-life, meaning they won't last very long. So that's the majority of the waste. Most of that waste, honestly, is gloves and all that protective clothing that I have, right? (laughs) So, and we just basically, you sit it, you just, yeah, you just sit it out there and it, over like 20 years, it goes away. Okay. Right. And it's gone. It's, you know, it's gone and you can basically go, go, go deal with that. Then you have your high level waste. Right. And this is the stuff that's that's really dangerous for about 100 years. And after 100 years, you can walk up and lick it. Now, (laughs) the quantity of that, if I took all that waste in the United States. Right. And I stuck it on a football field, it'd be 50 feet deep. Wow. So peak nuclear, as far as for energy for the United States was 40 percent was peak percentage. Um, we had our best year in 2019, most amount of power generated um, with 96 reactors in 2019. So we've been doing this for 70 years, right? 70 mm-hmm. years and our entire waste footprint is that. And we put them in these storage containers. Storage containers are rated for 300 years. Okay. You can walk up and hug them. <laughs> it won't hurt you. Wow. Right. Wow. Okay. I mean, they're not. I mean, it's inside, right? If you were right. you now, if if the fuel was exposed, yeah, Usi and Bolt couldn't even run up to it before it would kill them. Okay. But it's inside these containers that provide shielding. They mm. use concrete and steel as shielding, and you could walk up to those containers and hug them. But in a hundred years, you don't have to worry about it. It would basically be radiation levels that you could easily manage. Mm, mm, so. Interesting. Interesting. So the waste is going into basically a garbage bin that you guys call containers. Yeah, yeah big. Yeah, it's a big garbage bin. Um, mm. But again, that waste, right? I can use, you know, that waste can be used as fuel, which is what the Russians are using. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's not a complete waste. <laughs> yeah, it's not a complete waste. Well, and, and the waste stream that comes out of, say, you know, like the, the, the lithium fluoride. Uh, molten salt reactor that your your the question was before, the waste stream that comes out of that because you can consume 100% of the fuel, whereas our our current reactors don't do that. Your waste streams only you know will last up to 300 years in length, and it's you know all not radioactive. after 300 years, um, whereas right now 
the big constituents of concern is really the plutonium, which lasts for about 25,000 years. You got to go five to 10 half-lives um, before it's gone. So now you're looking at, you know, a quarter million years, right? That's a long time. Mm. But if I consume that plutonium, it's got basically the same waste stream as a thorium reactor, right? Mm. I went through and, and, you know, when I was doing all my research and learning how these advanced reactors work, basically they create the same waste <laughs> at the end product. Yeah. And, but that waste isn't as bad as you think, right? So I start with, I like using, this is my, my great descriptor, descriptor for it, is I put a hundred tons of fuel into a reactor, right? And I, and I consume it in a Gen 4 reactor, whether it's thorium or plutonium reactor. I consume all that waste, right? It came out of a pressurized water reactor and I had a hundred tons of waste. I could take 60 tons of that reactor's waste of that Gen 4 reactor, and I can mm -hmm. throw it away because it's not radioactive. Mm. Wow. Immediately coming out, right? Yeah. So I've already reduced my waste by half, over half. Yeah. 25% of that remaining waste has useful applications in industry and the medical industry. <laughs> right? So now I have 25 tons that I want to use. You want, you want cancer treatments? Right, yeah. you want radiography for for checking welds in, you know, say a ship or on you know a high rise building, right? Making sure that you don't have flaws in the metal so that you know you don't cause a building to collapse or something like that. Yeah. Right. So you know you need this stuff, so it has a useful purpose, and then the remaining fifteen tons may only last for three hundred years. Here's here's the coolest thing that the industry is coming up with: diamond nuclear batteries. Huh. So I could take that waste. It's radioactive. Radioact radi radioactive means it releases energy. I create some form of a solar panel kind of thing around it. And it absorbs that energy and creates electricity. And so imagine you have a battery that could last for 300 years. Wow. I need one of those. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I want one too. Um, and you know, now NASA is actually using that. Um, just this last week, uh, the U.S. Department of Energy delivered the power supply for the new the new Mars mission. The mm. rover is going to be nuclear powered, so it's going to mm. run off of a similar system. It's going to run off of a nuclear battery that's going to last for um, you know probably you know several hundred years. Mm. Wow! Wow! That's amazing! That's amazing! Daniel Hawk said, "I got a ninety-seven on the ASVAB, and I really messed up not staying in the Navy longer than twenty-seven days. Dumbest choice in my life." Damn, Daniel! Damn, Daniel! Anybody remembers that? Damn, <laughs> <laughs> Daniel! Hey, man! You know, mistakes that we learn from, man. It's all good. Uh, so before we part, let me just ask you. You know, in summary, you know, you talked about black folks getting into this thing. Um, how can black people get into this industry without a college degree and without going into the military? Is there still a way to do that? Because you said this there, other guy went from sweeper. Yeah, yeah there is. Um, well, big thing is you got to stay off drugs, and that includes marijuana. Okay. Right, marijuana. If you if you pop on a on a drug test in my industry and on the commercial side. It's a five-year ban for your first offense, permanent ban for second. Gotcha. All right. If you go to the military side, it's permanent. One, okay. one pop and done. 
All right, so you got to stay off drugs, and that includes marijuana. And I understand marijuana is legal in a lot of states. And my cousin, whose name is Rob Schneider, is a is a big guy in the cannabis industry out west. I went to visit him, and every single person I met out there was like, I told him I can't use it. I would love to, but I can't. I want. I I would lose my job. Yeah, right? I mean, you're dealing so, with nuclear energy. You know, you don't want yeah. somebody that's high. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. All yeah. right. Um, so that's that's the big thing. The second thing is is that there are other methods to get in there. Uh, so Newport News shipbuilding is a great pathway to get in there, and this is a great thing, a great plug that I, I will do this for is that um, they have what's called the apprentice school. So it's almost like a hybrid with that getting your degree and not having to pay anything for it. Um, uh, we had, we we had a babysitter. Her husband went through eight year program, got a four year bachelor's degree, engineering degree from through Old Dominion University, didn't pay a dime for it, hmm. right? So you have to have, you have to have, for this, you have to have your high school diploma. You can go online. If you Google, uh, have any of your listeners, they Google Huntington Ingalls Industries, Newport New Shipbuilding Apprentice School, right? And you go in there. So they, it's basically you get double the time to do your degree because you're going to work as a trades worker. You may be, you, you may be hauling ventilation trunks. You may be, you know, helping carry tools. You may be sweeping up floors, right? Yeah, you got to do your grunt. With. You got to do your grunt work. You got to put your time in. Yeah, yeah. And you, you start out at the bottom and you work your way up. And at the same time, they're sending you to classes, right? right. I have a coworker named Rob. That's how Rob got into the got into the commercial industry. Was he started out in the apprentice school at Newport New Shipbuilding, right? And he was, you know, doing all this stuff. They were sending him to the community college. First two years, the first, the associates level is all through the community college. Bachelor's level is all through Old Dominion University, and he went to, to Thomas uh, to the community college, and he was taking one of the classes. He took his his resume to one of the ladies there, applied for the job in that foundations program. We'll talk about that again, uh, how Carlos did it, and um, and she she smoothed it out. You know, just because he was a guy from here, sent his resume and he gets brought into, um, you know, work at the uh, the power plant out at Surrey. Right. So. A foot in the door in any of these industries, and I don't know if the shipyard up in electric boat, the electric boat shipyard up in, in New London, Connecticut has a program, but I would imagine they do. They just signed a big submarine contract for the Columbia class submarine. I'm sure they're hiring. Right. But getting your foot in the door um, in anything, right, helps you get that experience. They have programs that are very similar for their shipyard workers because they need what are called, you know, we, in the nuclear industry called licenses. They have shift test engineers, which is the equivalent for the U.S. Navy, where you're going through and learning how a nuclear reactor works. It's a high paying job, too. Maybe not $200,000 a year, maybe more like one twenty one thirty. But um, you also don't operate the ship. The Navy does that. You can walk away. <laughs> so okay. the Navy gets to do really all the hard stuff. Like if there's a hurricane, I may have to go live at the plant. If there's a hurricane at a at a shipyard, you get to go flee the area. The Navy guys get to, get to stay behind. So there's a little benefit there. Um, and then the other one is, uh, you know, like the way Carlos did it, is you start in and there's um, – I think if you go outageworker.com, O-U-T-A-G-E, worker.com, mm -hmm. you can start into the commercial industry 
um, as an outage worker. It may be 12 bucks an hour sweeping floors and you may have to bounce from site to site. And here's something that's really cool. There are outage workers that work the spring and the fall because that's outage season. And they live off of the money throughout the other seasons. So they work basically six to seven months a year mm. and have the rest of the time off. Okay. Because um, they're working six days a week, 12 hour shifts typically. Okay. When they're, when they're on an outage. Right. Um, and you can get not just into operations, you can get into um, HP technicians or the health physics, the radiation protection, mechanics, electricians, welders, all that stuff. You can get into those companies like Day and Zimmerman, BHI, um, you know, you go into them, you start at the low trade, all that stuff. Um, and if there's anybody who has detailed more questions with that, my, my direct messages are open so I can feed this information to people that are interested. Mm. And I mean, you know, there are some of the coolest people are these they So when you do an outage, you shut down a unit, you'll bring anywhere from 800 to 2000 people in to your, uh, um, into the plant. Right. So you mm -hmm. bring the, you bring a lot of people in for a short period of time because okay. when the reactor shut down, you're not making money. Right. Cause you right. got to sell, you got to sell power to the grid. Yeah. So you bring all these people in, you disassemble it and reassemble it. I mean, we have this lady, Carol, sweetest little old, you know, like she's like everyone's grandma. She operates the elevator and the containment. Like that's her job. Right. She makes probably 12 bucks an hour, you know, in her sixties operating the elevator. Yeah. Right. I mean, so there's a lot, you know, it doesn't, it, you know, high school diploma, actually some of those you may not even need a high school diploma for. Right. So, but there's a lot, there's of, a lot of travel. Okay. A lot of travel. Okay. A lot of travel. Yeah. And it can be international. Uh, so you'll see the world. Yeah. You could, if you go to France, France has nuclear reactors. They got um, 55, I think. So you got mm. to, uh, you know, you, you, you go out to France, you go to Japan. Um, we actually had a, a worker that was, um, that was working my last outage that he and his mom were working it. They were from Cancun. <laughs> he goes, we make so much money. We live like Kings. <laughs> yeah, definitely in Cancun. Uh, yeah. yeah. Wow. He goes, my, he goes they, they pay for my visa. You know, bring me up here. They pay for all my training. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. Mark, thank you very much for coming on today. I'm going to disseminate this information to everybody and make sure everybody sees this. I'm going to have family and friends check this out. Appreciate you coming on. Everybody, Mark Schneider. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. No problem, man.